Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. It gives me great pleasure to introduce not just this evening, but also a wider season called Lost Futures, Futures Found, which we launched at the Academy last week. And the season really looks at this moment in time, the sort of post-war British architecture, the legacies of it and the future of it, which has come under, I think, particular attention in recent years, come up against a lot of scrutiny by some and celebrated by others. This season has been inspired by sort of a lovely book which has been published by the Royal Academy of Arts, written by Owen Hopkins, who wrote it while he was the architecture program curator here at the Royal Academy of Arts. It opens with a sort of an essay which interrogates some of the context, the political social context that gave birth and rise to a lot of these buildings. And then through 35 case studies of some really sumptuous pictures which capture the moment in which these projects were born and came to life. And they show the aspirations and that sort of utopian vision that many of these sort of projects sort of embodied. Um, Alongside that, we have also uh, just opened on Saturday an exhibition in the architecture space in the Royal Academy of Arts called Futures Found. We've got six guest curators who have looked at a number of projects that range from St Peter's Seminary in Cardross to University of Essex to the Haygate Estate, uh, Park Hill, Hong Crescent. And they're looking at the kind of expanded narratives around it, not just this book which explores a lot of buildings which have either been lost or or um, or significantly altered, but actually looking at projects which still exist and have got narratives that are sometimes critical but also very positive around them. And that gave birth to this evening as well. We invited Tom Wilkinson, who is the history editor of Architect of at the Architectural Review and also author of a book himself, um, Bricks and Mortals, um, to put together a series of three events which looked at some of the ideas that arise from the book, some that come out of the display, and his own view on this very important period of architecture. So I'm going to hand over to Tom to give you a little bit of context for this evening's discussion. Thank you, Kate. And I'd like to thank you, Kate, for inviting me to um, arrange these events. And thank you all for coming this evening. Looking at this wonderful book, which is very necessary, um, sadly, still, because despite the growth, if not the boom in interest in post-war modernism in Britain, um, great buildings are still under threat and being demolished at a rate of knots. Um, The example in Durham currently under threat is obviously... a one that's been in the news recently. Um, But it struck me that in focusing on great buildings, in inverted commas, there is a lot of the story being left out. So one of the things I saw it as my task uh, was to uh, fill in the gaps to a certain extent and perhaps also to question, um, but in a gentle way, the the project of of these great buildings, collecting these great buildings in a sort of canon. So in order to do so, um, I've put together three events. Uh, This is the first one. um, And they're sort of roughly arranged in a chronological sequence. So tonight we're going to be talking, we're going to be going back to the past and seeing what what we might not Uh, notice about the past, the smaller things, the everyday modernism is what I've called it, and I hope and expect that we will be questioning that term, um, because I realise that in itself that is also a rather problematic way of attempting to deal with this issue, the smaller things that get left out of the narrative. When I say we're going to be in the past tonight, that's not quite true anyway, because the smaller things are the things that tend to get lost first. So you only have to think of the uh, garden of the former Commonwealth Institute, which was destroyed recently by OMA, or the Paolozzi mosaics, which have been partially restored to Tottenham Court Road Station. That gives you some idea of the themes tonight. The next one is going to be on brutalism. That's already sold out. And then the one after that is about, yes, inevitably. And then the one after that, which is in April, is about uh, utopian ideas. So that one's the future and whether any of the ideas from post-war modernism are still of use today and and in the future. Um, So do buy a ticket if you haven't already. (laughs) And I look forward to seeing you at the next one and perhaps the one after that. 
So uh, I think it's time to get cracking um, and to welcome uh, my guests and chair tonight. The chair is Joe Kerr, who is a, well, it's all up here anyway, <laughs> an architectural historian and sometime bus driver. Um, and he's going to be chairing. My other guests are Penny Spark, who is Pro Vice-Chancellor at Kingston and the head of the Modern Interiors Research Centre. Ben Highmore, Professor of Cultural Studies, did a wonderful piece about um, hopscotch modernism, which I think is where I first came across your work. Um, and then, of course, John Grindwald, whose book, Concretopia, is a wonderful trip around the modernist cities of Britain, um, in which he interviews the people who live, love, and hate them. And I think I'm going to pass over to Joe now. Thank you, Tom. Um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first of these three discussions uh, related to the show and to the book and so forth. Um, and it's a great pleasure to have you here on this, on this balmy day, uh, the sort of day that puts uh, a spring in your step. But none of that frippery here, please. We're going to be very, very serious indeed, discussing uh, this idea of everyday modernism. And there's a, there's a kind of interesting irony here, because we are... This is, a, this is a, an event for architecture space of the, uh, of the RA. Um, and actually, we're questioning whether architecture deserves the supremacy um, that it's claimed to have in the kind of discourse around post-war modernism and modernity. So we're looking at whether the kind of concentration on big things has tended to overshadow discussion of smaller things. And... It's extraordinary, it's my great privilege to have an amazing panel of speakers to address this issue because they have all variously written about very, very big things and some very, very small things. So we kind of cover the spectrum, as it were, uh, in our panel. Um, and I think we all have questions to ask about this idea of everyday modernism, quotidian modernism, um, and whether modernism itself is something disparate that can be looked at in this way, or whether it might actually be a more cohesive field. But without further ado, the format is that we have three speakers who will each present very briefly, and it's my job to make it very brief, um, and then we'll begin a discussion, firstly with the panel, and then, of course, the, the body of the evening will be to throw it open to you to discuss. So the order of speakers, we've arranged them actually physically here, so you can remember who everybody is. So we're going to start with John Grindrod on, the, on my right, your left, um, who has written about very large things indeed, very immutable bits of modernism and modernity. So for your five minutes, John, thank you. Cheers, thank you. So this picture, this is Croydon, uh, where I grew up, as featured in a 1977 ladybird book, Road Sense, <laughs> illustrated by local artist Bernard Robinson. Ladybird books are the perfect vehicle with which to talk about everyday modernism, because not only do they depict images of everyday modernism within their pages, but they were also eager participants in modernism as a project. Douglas Keane, who ran Ladybird in the post-war era, was friends with many modernist architects and designers, and he brought very, and he brought very readily into the dream of a new world that they offered. The Peter and Jane books, the keyword reading scheme, for example, were a hugely successful attempt to modernise the way Britain taught reading in schools and at home. Here you can see modernity has reached Peter and Jane with their Austin Maxi and the tower block in the distance. Of course, Ladybird were impressed by the heroic forms of modernism we could see around us, like the new tower blocks going up. Or the glamour of big names like Eames or Jacobson and their modern design classics. This is, these are the end papers from the, the book on furniture. But it's the representation of more mundane, everyday things at which Ladybird excelled. New plastic products, for example. Or techniques for producing things a child of the era would likely find in their home many of which were the domestic offshoots of the petrochemical industry. New appliances were becoming familiar uh, to millions, gadgets to help improve and streamline the chores of everyday life. These images sit somewhere between advertising and documentary, selling the dreams of the modern world 
while also reflecting the lives of the assumed middle-class readers. Even subjects like nuclear power tackled, were tackled in the books and always tied back into the familiar and everyday. Here's the setting for a Barry White seduction, perhaps, <laughs> or at the very least, nylon fueled spontaneous combustion. <laughs> Urkel chairs crop up to teach us the alphabet. And the basics of modernity, the essential amenities of plumbing and e electricity, are celebrated. Communication, too, in its latest forms, is exactly the kind of thing that whole books could be dedicated to. Even car parks are grudgingly mentioned. Our new shopping precincts were the closest many of us got to a brush with modernism on a heroic scale. And there were shiny new escalators and train stations, too. Even the controversial new Euston one which was described in loving detail for the junior geek. New fabrics were explained. Everything was interesting in the eyes of the Ladybird illustrators, led by Douglas Keane, that forward-thinking, guiding hand. They remind us that days out weren't always so idyllic. And modern workplaces were not always the gleaming delights imagined by the Bauhaus and the like. Modern work was detailed extensively in Ladybird's People at Work books. Here there are women using adding machines, a piece of technology long lost to us today. And here are early computers in the office. Modern NHS hospitals feature too, with all the new technology they were bringing into our lives. So you see, Ladybird books weren't all about the far out and fantastical. For example, uh, this could well be an image for a modern update to one of Ladybird's best-selling books, Cinderella. <laughs> and that's the secret truth behind a lot of the post-war modernity depicted in these books and images. Work and life may have been transformed by the magic wand of modernity, but much of it was as banal and exhausting as it ever was, even though a few more of us were now, going to get, uh, were now getting to go to the ball. Thank you very much. John, can I just ask you in terms of that imagery, particularly, so there's this kind of interesting separation between work and home here, isn't mm -hmm. there? So, so there's what people do at work, what people do at home. Mm -hmm. In both cases, and they're, and they're in modern interiors mm. or in modern workspaces, is, is the impl implication of the text that these are the spaces that people are already in, that this is just representing the real world back at us, or is this aspirational? Well, there's a sort of mixture of both. So in the most part, the Ladybird books are aspirational, but sometimes they try and tie it back into such a recognisable bit of your life so Peter and Jane books, for example, are very much kind of supposed to represent what your average middle-class family might be doing and the stuff they might have in their homes. But some of the other books are incredibly kind of, you know, the, the book on nuclear power is, you know, pretty hard subject to tackle in a, you know, tiny ladybird book, you know. And they don't really succeed in, you know, breaking open the secrets of that. But they do try and tie it back into our lives at the same time, you know. So it's a mixture, really. I must show you one day. Eagle Comics, some of you will remember Eagle Comics, who also did versions of, of kind of modern life. Mm. And they always did a Christmas special. And one of the great ones was how nuclear power uh, powers the lights on your Christmas tree. And they get a diagram <laughs> from a nuclear power station to a Christmas tree. Modern life, eh? <laughs> Excellent. So, without further ado, our second speaker is Ben Highmore. Great. Okay, um, so I want to make a claim for a form of everyday modernism that is irregular, interrupted, and uneven. So I want to suggest that alongside ordinary modernism, or kind of ordinary modern, uh, forms of modernism, that there's, there's something that constantly rubs shoulders uh, with its other. And I want to offer three scenes. 
The first two are straightforwardly examples of the uneven landscapes of everyday life. But the third is an example of what I want to call inconspicuous modernism, and that's kind of modernism that we perhaps don't even notice that is still with us today. Okay, scene one. In 1984, I was doing a fine art degree at Sheffield Poly. I was specialising in what was called communication arts, film, video, photography, and performance. I hated performance. Uh, a film by one of my peers stood out at the time. It was a time-lapse film at the Park Hill Flats uh, in the centre of Sheffield, which is above. The film show, showed Park Hill across the day. You saw the sun coming up, the shadows shortening, lots of scudding clouds, and then as the shadows lengthened, something happened to the entire flats. All at once, they turned blue. It was the blue light of hundreds of cathode ray TVs all coming on at once. Its synchronicity was due to the fact that so many people were switching on their TV at the same time. 7.30, it's Coronation Street. <laughs> now, Coronation Street and Park Hill share the same birthday. Corrie, as it's affectionately called, uh, begins December 1960, while Park Hill opens just a few months later. Corrie conjures up a world that is just in the process of disappearing. The cobbled streets shown in Coronation Street becoming outmoded uh, by mass car ownership and TV watching taking control. But they exist side by side, and Park Hill's Streets in the Air was a modernist form that was trying to keep uh, that vernacular tradition of actual Coronation Street communities uh, alive as it tried to respond to uh, mass car ownership and things like TV watching. Okay, my second scene is um, I've moved to the Smithsons, the Robin Hood uh, Gardens. And I'm, I'm making a claim that often um, our everyday modernisms uh, come to us uh, through technology. So it's rather than thinking about kind of rugs and curtains, we should think about uh, TVs and telephones, and maybe things like the graphic in idents on TV, the ITV uh, uh, mask. <clears throat> but I also want to make a point about class here. Uh, one of the most insistently modernizing groups of people are those that are most targeted by welfare reforms in housing, in schools, in hospitals. In the 1960s, it is people moving into new council houses who are experiencing underfloor heating, electric waste disposal units and such like. Swathes of the middle class are existing in drafty houses without central heating and fitted kitchens, precisely because of the modern reeks of new money. If you are mimicking the gentry, you want to suffer like them too. But it's, re it's worth reworking our bland class landscape of working versus middle class and filling this out with much more uh, kind of historically specific ideas about the affluent worker or the new working class or the new middle class. This term new gets used uh, endlessly. And also those that are comfortably off, you know, this phrase, comfortably off. So this is Stuart Hall writing in 1958. This is him. The growth of consumer goods or the council house do not in themselves transform a working class into a bourgeoisie. That he could write this points to the large number of people who were arguing exactly this, that the new council houses were a whole-scale embourgeoisement of the working classes. Now, if you go back to 1984, the year I was watching the Park Hill Flats, it's the same year that uh, the bill started showing on uh, British TV. And most weeks, uh, it was on like three nights a week, uh, and it was a police drama that was set in some kind of imagined place of, of, of London. And you only had to, someone pick up the phone and say, there's trouble at the Lark Mead, the Cockcroft Estate, the Jasmine Allen Housing Estate. These were all these kind of imagined modernist landscapes. And you had a kind of immediate image of, oh my God, the hoodies have got going, or uh, prostitution, drugs, under, uh, underage drivers doing handbrake turns in stolen motors. So that kind of, the time of modernism, I think, is, you know, we can't divorce that from how we're looking at it from, from now. Um, oh, that was another, uh, inside Robin Hood uh, Gardens, with things like the trim phone and uh, 
things like that. But, uh, but my last scene is about uh, sorts of inconspicuous modernism <clears throat> that might have crept up on us unnoticed during the long 19, 1970s and might have become institutionalised by things like the global success of IKEA in the 1980s. In the early 1970s, Habitat offered uh, versions of what they called Habitat Basics, chief self-assembly functional furniture. This might, be, might well be a form of, of minor modernism or a middling modernism that looked like it too thought that decoration was crime. But where, we might have, where there might have been a general soft revolution of modernism could be uh, in something as simple as the duvet. This is my argument. Uh, here is a design solution. Of course, you know, Claiming that the duvet is modernist is ridiculous because it goes back to kind of uh, uh, peasant times. But, but the way it kind of comes through is a kind of Scandinavian uh, solution to all these kind of problems around hygiene, problems of housework, might well have it as a, a kind of modernist thing. So here uh, is a design solution that doesn't just offer simplicity and a certain truth to materials. It also ushers in a different tonality of living a certain ease in household chores, and what is crucial, a break with the past, a break with the idea of passing on materials from one generation to the next. When I was a child, I slept under an eiderdown that was passed down from my grandmother's deathbed. <laughs> one thing's for sure, my duvet's not going anywhere. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but duvet's also, um, it's a kind of sense, a symbol of liberation, isn't it? of mm. breaking out of conformity and uniformity. And uh, what's the fold called, the one the army fold called for sheets and blankets? Oh, hospital corners. Hospital corners, yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, getting yeah. away from all of that, isn't it? Yes, yes. So it's, and tied I, up with kind of ideas of kind of sexual liberation for some. Well, yes, indeed. So if I learnt nothing else tonight, the fact that Park Hill Flats and Corrie, we should call it Parky and Corrie maybe, yeah. <laughs> um, share a birthday, that's something new. Thank you. Can I just ask you, though, so either side of the Pennines, these two different v um, visions of working-class life, is Coronation Street the first beginnings of an, of an apprehension about the rolling out of modernism? Is it actually, is it like the kind of Cecil Sharp, you know, this is the stuff that's going, we need to record it and document it or celebrate it? I don't, I don't, I don't know whether that's, uh, whether that's kind of true or not, because I, I think that is something that, those kind of cultural forms do, that they're kind of, you know, they tend to be a form of mourning in a sense. Um, uh, for instance, EastEnders with Albert Square, you know, comes in just as the East End is completely changing, Docklands is, is happening. Um, so, so maybe, you know, maybe they're a kind of part of an, you know, to, to widen uh, 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 modernism into kind of an experience. Perhaps the experience is both the, the new and the, the, the end kind of disappearing. Um, the, the image I have in mind is uh, whatever happened to the likely lads uh, when Boland comes back from being away and they, and they do this tour of kind of the Newcastle area and they just say, here is where there used to be this ballroom here. And, and th so there's a whole kind of landscape of memory kind of being completely uh, destroyed and they're doing it on top of a, of, of, of a, a multi-storey car park. Uh, so that, you know, that kind of, you know, n never just the new, no. always the morning. I think it is part of our subject that if we're, if we're, if we're looking back into the post-war period to look at the rolling out of modernism, we probably need to look at, at the extent to which modernism was being contested. And I think every time we think about it, it seems to go further and further back, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. But let's move on to Professor Penny Spark, who, of course, <coughs> would, I think, be faintly surprised by the idea that the minor things of life had been <laughs> overlooked because um, she's built a career looking at exactly that. Yeah, don't see so. them as minor. <laughs> Penny. Thank you. Um, hi, everybody. OK, I'm going to keep up this theme of the interior, which seems to have come through a little bit through the talk so far, so I'll carry on with it. So the so-called minor modernism that I would like to present to you over the next few minutes is that of the 1950s domestic interior created by the same new middle classes, I think, that, that you're talking about. And that's, I think, we need to pick that one up. It's, it's a big one, isn't it? 
So unlike that expressed by the buildings in Futures Found, which you'll see in the, in the gallery, the modernism found in the middle-class domestic interior was neither public nor was it linked to the idea of a utopia for the masses. Instead, it was a private ideal, linked to the politics of personal, gendered, and familial identity formation, a very different kind of ideal. It wasn't, as we've seen, or if you've seen the exhibition, a top-down, large-scale social and economic change ideal, quite the reverse. It was in-home, private, personal, which I think we need to think about as well as the other. That's my point, really. So the domestic interior... Oh, I haven't got my slides up, have I? Let's, let me start. I'll wait for a minute because I haven't quite got to my first one yet. Okay, the domestic interior, if we're thinking very much of architecture as being sort of architects and then people who lived in what architects made, it's not so easy to think about the sort of the agent and the, the user, I think, in the domestic interior. They get a bit muddled. So the domestic interior was created by a set of agents, from furniture designers, textile designers, kitchen appliance designers, <laughs> but most important of all was the coordination provided by the amateur housewife. She, in turn, was assisted in her task by a whole range of things, women's magazines, advice books, TV and radio broadcasts, the kind of interiors you saw in TV programs you've been talking about, retail displays, exhibitions. So she wasn't on her own. She had plenty of source material, but she was left to do it as an amateur, using these things that were created by non-amateurs. The aspirational new middle-class 1950s housewife desired and set about creating a modern interior for the most part. That's what's so interesting about it. It was a period where modern was what you did. However, we have to approach that term with care in this context. What does modern mean? On one level, being modern meant, as it did in so many other contexts, embracing science, especially new materials and technologies. In his 1953 book, Housecraft Science, for example, J.M. Holt explained that a good modern house should be fitted with efficient equipment such that a sufficiency of fresh air, pure water, good sanitation, sunshine and warmth, and labour-saving devices are available. I mean, Le Corbusier could have said that almost. It's a sort of straight taking down modernism into, into the everyday, but keeping the same kind of ideology. But that progressive modern ideal was also interpreted stylistically through the new furniture items, textiles, wallpapers, <coughs> and decorative items that filled the new domestic spaces. And I'm just giving you a, a, a fairly random example. But you can see the boxy chairs, sofas, um, the pieces of technology that we've seen already, the modern paintings on the wall, the open, open plan with the divider that doesn't break the space, but hi highly modernist. And, and I think there are some, no, there's, there's curtains at the background, just about to see some pattern on through there. But that, that's just a kind of totally random, but very typical kind of space. Now, while many items were purchased and brought into the house quite clearly from outside, it was the amateur skills of curtain making, wallpapering, and woodworking, as well as that of arranging, a very underestimated art, I would say, um, among many others, that transformed them into a domestic interior. Do-it-yourself, which was what was going on in these spaces, um, was a highly gendered activity with women normally doing the light sewing-related and decorating tasks, or, as you often see in images from the period, holding the ladder while the men performed the heavier work. And there's a like, little classic where there, she's doing painting, which is light work. She, you can get on with that. He's doing a bit of woodwork. He's covering in these um, old-fashioned um, the, the, the rails of the, of the staircase with a nice flush modern thing. But it's a... To, to save her work, obviously. Oh, yes. He wouldn't have dusted them, would he? So. Exactly. She hasn't got to dust them anymore. You can just uh, leave them as they are, exactly. But highly gendered activity. Now, in this context, modern could also be traditionally oriented. And I think that's very important and relates to what we've just been saying about nostalgia for the past. Um, as the notions of comfort and family life are in the home. There's no, we don't lose those in this period. They're still there. And they're there visibly in certain rooms. As a result, interiors often contained items of furniture and decorative schemes that maintained a level of continuity with the past. I just put that images because you can see that sort of almost sort of 18th century um, curtaining that's going on there. But there are modern objects as well. It's a kind of kind of mix, really, a melange. Tradition, however, was much less obvious, as we've seen in other slides already, in kitchens and bathrooms, where instead ideas from across the Atlantic. Streamlined appliances, although there aren't very many streamlined appliances there, but you know the kind of thing, I mean, the bulbous um, food mixes. Fitted units, again, American, um, become extremely popular at this time. 
So, the notion of modern domesticity, which is what I'd like to call it, that was at play here, was a complex hybrid concept rooted in an aspiration to live a modern middle-class lifestyle on the part of those engaged with it and to acquire a modern identity through life in the home, it embraced both contemporary and nostalgic values. While science, technology, efficiency, and a notion of social upward mobility, which came with all those, those wonderful things, underpinned the notion of the good life, which was so prevalent, such was the importance of family life at the same time that tradition had its part to play in certain places in the room. Now, in the context of today's discussion, just to conclude, Focusing on the domestic interior not only problematizes the otherwise rather monovalent idea of the modern, it also bridges the divide between the designer and the consumer, as already suggested. The female homemaker was both. Indeed, it was her ability to bridge that gap that resulted in the concept of modern domesticity, which provided such a ubiquitous, arguably not so minor version of modernism in 1950s Britain. Thank you. Thank you. So one of the further complexities you're introducing then is that modern life doesn't require the purchase of modernist objects. Well, that's part of it, but not all of it. Yeah. You can then do things with them as you like, make them your own. So if we, I mean, even if we accept there's a hierarchy between architecture and then furnishings and the, and the applied arts and so forth, mm. there's then a further hierarchy between the organisations that promote them and say that these must be the good taste movement and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Good design and design good council, design. council of industrial yeah, design. Yeah. Yes, there's a, there's a huge push from establishment organisations to ensure that particularly women in their task of homemaking select the good products, good design products. But of course, that's, there's not, that's not just about um, raising taste. It's about getting people to consume home in the home market, which will then move into the, into the foreign market. So it's, it's economically <coughs> rooted. It's not just humane. I would suggest. So, ladies and gentlemen, I have an interesting task here, trying to pull threads together from those three very, very different presentations. But there seem to be two very obvious themes here, which is that th this is basically class and gender, isn't it? I mean, almost anything that was talked about in those three related in some way to class and gender. And I don't just mean both in terms of production, design, and in consumption. Because mm -hmm. one of the things we do know, don't we, is that... Is that um, the designers were gendered very much, and you've made that point, but you've also made the point that the consumers were gendered as well. And class, uh, you didn't, but our previous two speakers saw the, the, the kind of the sphere of minor modernism or everyday modernism as being public housing designed uh, by the state for consumption by a grateful working class. Is that a fair summary? I don't think it was entirely... I don't think it was entirely that. I, th I feel like there were lots of different um, aspects to what we might term minor modernism for the sake of this talk. Um, and there is certainly, there are certain forms of it that are, it would be more aimed at working class families than would be aimed at middle class families. I feel like there is a, you do see a difference in products. Um, and the certainly a lot of those products were very aspirational. So something like a transistor radio was a really aspirational product. But actually, as the price came down, became more and more kind of available. You know, so as mass production got better uh, for a new product that would come along, prices would come down, and therefore they would become available to more people. And then the class barrier would eventually be kind of breached. Mm. The other theme that's kind of implicit, um, particularly, Ben, in, in what you said, but we haven't yet made explicit, is geography, isn't it? And if we're talking about the reception of modernism and modernity, we know that it's geographic, isn't it? Or, um, I think we know that, don't we? And that, it's, in fact, social housing is probably the only way in which, in which a kind of comprehensive vision of modernism was distributed evenly throughout Great Britain. Otherwise, probably London was, was, was far more kind of central to this than other places in the UK. Is that fair enough? Or? Well, I, I guess it depends what you're looking at. I mean, you know, kind of Park Hill, but, but also the, um, the, 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 the kinds of um, housing estates that are much more kind of middling modernism, that, that aren't kind of high-rise, that are kind of low-rise with a kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of, a, a kind of brick, brick and timber modernism. 
um, you know, is a kind of around kind of Birmingham and places like that. But I think the, the point of, of, of technology is interesting. I mean, I was looking at something that we, I think it was at the end of the 50s, and it was looking at a, a, a council uh, housing estate in Liverpool and going around and saying, you know, what, what do people have in their house? You know, how many people have TV, radio? And it was, it was kind of 80, 90% for things like TV and, and, and radio. Where it drops down is things like um, uh, fridges. You know, they're like 20% kind of take up because they're, uh, they're very expensive. So, so, you know, I think to, to look at this is also to look at a kind of moment at the end of the 50s where the Labour Party is going, you know, oh my God, the working class no longer exists. Uh, what are we going to do? Um, you know, they need to worried too much, but <laughs> they're more worried now. I suppose. Uh, but, but that kind of, you know, that, that affluence can could kind of, kind, of, kind, of, kind of break this. But I do remember seeing somebody interviewed on the television who'd been to the Festival of Britain from Lancashire and had fallen in love with things that had been presented to her. Clothing, actually, quite a lot of it. And then went back home and found that it had to wait 10 years before any of it was actually on sale locally. Yeah, that, I think that's the point I could have expanded much more at the beginning, that in a sense, the geography's there, but you... you but, you're moving around, and it's all th coming through the media, so the media's kind of everywhere. Um, and you're getting your ideas about things you might want from exhibitions or magazines or TV programmes, whatever. Um, so they're kind, of, they're, they're kind of not fixed geographically. They're, they're available anywhere. Um, but th they're all about breeding ideals. Not necessarily, you're not necessarily going to have one, but you want mm. one. So it's, mm. I think aspiration is the key word. So that does, it does blur notions of pure class identity, doesn't it? It's, it's one class wanting to be another. And the media and... Um, well, the retail world, manipulating that. Really. Mm. But if you wanted a modern sideboard, you couldn't catch a train and go to Heels and take it back on the train, <laughs> with you, could you? I mean, you had to yeah, wait yeah, until yeah. it was. Yeah, was yeah but that's that, yeah, the, in the beginning of the period. It speeds up such that yeah. you know the, the local department store in wherever Leicester or whatever would would have a perhaps not quite as nice one, but nearly as nice, a bit cheaper. Yeah. Okay, so in, in, the other thing that's that's clear between the three presentations you're all interested in and all think is, is pertinent to this is the, the domestic interior. So we've got this, you know, on the one hand you've got this disparity between big things, architecture, and small things, objects, but it, there is this in-between space of interior, the domestic interior and interior design. And it is very interesting, isn't it, how architects themselves, particularly when they were designing social housing, showed precious little interest in interiors. I was once supervising a piece of research that had to be abandoned because it was someone who wanted to, to, to look at interiors as represented in architectural magazines looking at social housing and found that there weren't any. You know, mm. There were photographs of the exterior and there were plans. That was it. So would it be fair to say that actually I think the interior is genuinely one of those spaces, one of those areas of modernity, most important areas of modernity, that has been sort of subjugated by the discourse? I think so. That's why I'm interested in it. I mean, that, that's yeah. the very reason I'm interested. In it. It's a lot. It's not a lost space, but it's a. It's a very complex space that is largely ignored by modernist architects, unless, of course, you go back into the pre-war period, where the, the the early modernists would. They'd put furniture in, but it would have to be built in, so this ex mm. extension of architecture, or it would be the Tony Bentwood chair because it's a piece of equipment. It's not furniture, but the, the, and that's why domesticity <coughs> is so interesting because they they're eroding. An idea of domesticity, and of course, that's what people want to put back into their homes is something called domesticity. Mm. Well, there's also this kind of idea, with, I think, with social housing that that people are going to bring their own personality to it. Mm -hmm. There's quite a lot of discussion with architects in that sort of post-war period. That, um, but there's a fantastic quote about um, not directly this, but uh, Essex University, which is very kind of quite minimal, brutalist campus. Um, the architect is very kind of unadorned, huge spaces, quite unadorned. And the, um, the architect said that the students would provide the decoration, that the, actually the physicality mm -hmm. of the actual students themselves would be the decoration in, the, mm -hmm. uh, in campus. And, there, and I think there's kind of, you hear echoes of that in quite a lot of architects of this period talking about, um, talking about, how houses or flats might be furnished by the people that move in. They will kind of bring their own 
stuff to it. And in a lot of cases, people are bringing, you know, bringing kind of old antique hand-me-down furniture from their family. They're not, they're not bringing in, you know, a load of nice Sputnik legged chairs and, you know, atom diagram magazine racks. They're bringing in massive, great big wardrobes that kind of dominate these spaces, you know, that are supposed to be all kind of clean lines. They're actually kind of recreating, you know, their grandmother's sitting room, more or less, because they've inherited all that furniture. Mm. And also, I mean, I think that, you know, that if you're looking at the, that kind of period, the 50s and the seven, to the 70s, you're looking at a kind of, you know, massive transformation in terms of uh, property ownership. Um, you, 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 you know, the 20th century is the time where it kind of goes from 10% of the households being kind of owned uh, to up to about 70%. Now, if, if something like the fitted kitchen is your kind of emblem of, of, of kind of modernism, you're not going to do that unless you own your, your house. You're not, you know, and, and people that own their houses and renting them out, they're not going to... You spend like, loads of money getting the most up-to-date kind of, kind of fitted well, kitchen. So that's kind of un- another kind of unevenness. Of, uh, Unless it's provided for you as part of municipal exactly, housing. Yes, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. exactly. yeah. yeah. um, actually kitchens in social housing were extraordinarily uh, advanced spaces, weren't mm. they? I mean, mm. Lots of technology was pioneered there, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the one hand, then, we have this, this sort of notion that architectural history has, has um, predicated architecture over other things. Um, the question is, is that our fault in terms of academic disciplines and discourse, for instance? Is it because architectural history is an older and more established discipline and has written it this way? I mean, do you think that if we could actually imagine the mindset of people in the period we're looking at, the period of post-war consensus, whether there would have been this sense of separation of architecture from other forms of design? You, get a lot of, um, you do get a lot of architects who have been product designers, um, which is quite interesting. So at the Festival of Britain, there were lots of product, and uh, Britain can make it, there were lots of products that are designed by people who go on to become quite famous architects. So people like Eric Lyons, who designed you know, span houses and that kind of thing. So I guess for them, sort of coming out of that kind of Bauhaus idea that you kind of do total design, you know, there, are, there is that tradition. And that follows through into very commercial design and architecture as well. So... Um, Paul Boisavian, who designed Elephant and Castle Shopping Centre, was a product, you know, designed products that uh, Britain can make it, you know. So, very, even very commercial architect rather than the kind of, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the people out of that sort of Bauhaus tradition were doing that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's quite interesting that I think there were architects doing both things and therefore trying to visualise how you might furnish a house because they were trying to design the furniture that might go in it. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know how much that works the other way around, though. I don't know, I don't know whether there were furniture designers that kind of then go on to become architects and... Well, I mean, in, implicit in my question is, is, is that this is, the, this is the birth of the era of design agencies, isn't it? Of designers who design across the piece. So... My feeling is, is, that, is that this separation, if we accept it, is one that we've imposed in retrospect, perhaps. In, in creating two distinct disciplines, which yeah. architectural history, design history, architectural history much older, as you say, more established, design history 30, 40 years old, really. Um, I'm optimistic that they're moving together in certain ways, but they're also not. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's an interesting divide. But if we do put them together, as we're attempting to tonight, do we end up with a sense of, of modernism as a unified field, really, running, running across, you know, kind of coherently running across everything, rather than being seen as these sort of pools, the separate pools, as it were, that require bridging? Does that make any sense? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I do, I mean academia is you know, siloed to the nth degree, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I think as soon as you start thinking, OK, right, let's put kind of design history and architectural history together, then you'd be thinking, well, okay, well, where did, where did um, uh, DIY live? And that was, you know, magazines, TV. Okay, well, let's kind of, we need a media history there as well. And, sure. and of course you do, yeah. you, you know. Absolutely. You need a bigger project than, than the, the disciplines as they're given to us most of the time. So, ladies and gentlemen, you're, you're very patient, and I will invite questions in a second, but the, the last issue that I would like to attack, address with us, 
is the issue of gender, um, both in terms of production and consumption, because we can't avoid it, can we? And it's so important to this debate. And it's very interesting that uh, right now, there's a, I, has anyone been to see it? There's a lovely exhibition of Lucien Day's fabrics on, in Bournemouth. If you haven't been to it, it's a fantastic exhibition. And Lucien Day is one of those, for me, one of those great figures of, of post-war design. And it's so extraordinary that Calix, when Heels first saw it, they saw it as a high-art, high-end thing that they would produce in a very limited run for very discerning people and were completely staggered when it turned out to be the best-selling um, fabric they'd ever produced or would ever produce. And yet, people like Lucien Day still remain in the shadow of other people, it seems to me, in, in public perception. In the shadow of Robin Day, maybe. <laughs> Quite possibly. Yes. It's, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, it, there's the gendering of the designer, and then there's the, the design areas where you'd expect women to be in textiles, and they are. You wouldn't expect many to be in automotive design, and they're not. A few, but not many. It, it, we, we live in a very kind of siloed world in, in, in the design world, actually. Mm. It, it, it's a very weird world. I mean, I always remember being at the RCA, and um, you go into the bar, and that's the only time the textile girls met the automotive boys. You know, it's a sort of two worlds coming together. It's incredibly gendered, and yet this is a sort of hub of creativity. It's a bizarre world we inhabit, mm. and uh, it needs breaking down. I, mean, I, do, I think... It's a difficult one. Do you, do, you, do you sort of pull those women out who are lost from history? I think you have to. Um, but you have to do the feminist thing and make sure they're discovered and um, documented. But there's, there's a long way to go. Equally, you have to look at the forces that, that, that created, that, 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 that kind them. of pushed them. Yeah, that lost, <laughs> lost them, exactly. Them, yeah. There was a cautionary tale I once, uh, that always interested me, and I wish someone would do a good book on it, which was Leslie Martin and Sadie Spate. Mm -hmm two great, successful, mm -hmm. young, modern architects in the 1930s. And of the two, Sadie Spate was the better known. Come the post-war period, Maybe. what happens? She actually became a designer. She moved into design. She did those lovely blue and white pots you put your... Yeah, and disappears from the, from the canon. Leslie Martin, of course, goes on to yeah, great yeah. things. Cambridge. And it seems to me so salutary that this could happen. You know, that In the 30s, you could have a woman... A partnership where the woman was actually better known she than She was man. in DRU, wasn't she? She was, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, good story. <laughs> but um, equally, it seems very interesting that, that, you know, the applied arts experiences subjugation in this period, perhaps precisely because it's the era in which women designers are coming to the fore, I don't know. Interesting. It's why I talked about the amateur, because I think that's, that's one way of getting around it. You know, the design, you see design across a spectrum of professional to amateur, then you can rethink about it. Mm. Obviously, I mean, one of the, the, the things for, uh, that I was kind of particularly interested in was the um, uptake of kind of technologies. And you see, you know, today they bring in a, a mobile phone and, and really you know, it's a ubiquitous item within about five years. And of course, other technologies uh, like the electric iron took much longer. Now, there's a real gendering to this because it's to do with who's paying for, you know, who holds the actual kind of bank account. So things like the, 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 the entertainment, TV, radio, get taken up really, really quickly. Washing machines, vacuum cleaners struggle <laughs> like crazy to get kind of taken up. So, so I think it, it's it also, as well as kind of thinking about uh, different roles, we need to think about, you know, where do we... You know, where do we start our investigations from? And I think, you know, shifting it to the kitchen as a kind of beginning yeah. place is a really useful, because it's kind of techno it's technological, there, it? it's, uh, you know, to do with kind of food, hygiene, all sorts of... Uh, uh, okay. Well, I lied to our audience because I've got one more question I want to ask you. <laughs> then I'll ask you. Which is that, I mean, I think technology is so important. And the area, it seems to me, in the post-war period where modernism and modernity and modern design were universally available and consumed was in infrastructure and transport, wasn't it? Mm. That's really where it catches on, isn't it? I mean, you can't get on a bus or a train or drive a car in this period without being exposed to the very best of modern design. Mm. And it's in that kind of technological uh, and infrastructural sphere that modernism is really pushed mm. in, in this country. Is that yeah, fair enough? Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, it's things like road signage, you know, the Margaret Calvert and Jock Kinnear's road signage, you know, when that comes in, that 
you look at the things that it's replacing, which is such a mess of different kinds of messages that must have been very difficult if you were travelling, you know, to different parts of the country and they would just, you know, have an entirely different signage system. Would it be so unhelpful, you know, if you were, you know, travelling to Devon and you'd come from Essex, you would have no idea what was going on with the signage route. You know, some of it would be, would be quite familiar, some of it wouldn't. And so that stuff makes such a difference. And, of course, it comes in at the same time that motorways, you know, start. You know, in 1956, you know, we have Britain's first, first motorway. And um, the sort of combination of those two things is very important because you can't, you can't start to have a big rationalised... Road, sort of fast road network without that rationalised road signage that would help prevent accidents and make the navigation of it easy. So yes, there are. You, so you don't. You tend not to just get one advance at, with uh, transport. You tend to get loads of stuff happening at once because you can't really have one without the other. So they have a kind of huge knock-on effect, really. And British Railways in the early sixties re redesigned everything. Mm -hmm from the spoons in the cafeteria to the uniforms to the stations to the trains themselves mm. across the field. And a pretty good job they did of it, I think, mm. it's fair to say. Also thinking of the post office as well, obviously. Yes. The kind of, yeah, yeah. Certain kind of, and, and also, you know, the way that, that those things like stamps uh, supported, you know, put forward all the new universities on their stamps mm. as, a, as a kind of... Mm. It was a cautionary tale about the... Um, Kinnear Culvert road signs is that the reason for introducing them was to pave, smooth the way for entry into the uh, common market. Mm. Oh, yes. So presumably we can get rid of them in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> move, back, move back to rustic thatched road signs. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and also the, the other thing is that, you know, following on from that, that, you know, with decimalisation and, you know, taking on kind of different measurements, again, that was another thing that required a wholesale redesign mm. of stuff so you could then suddenly introduce whole new kind of rules that would require new signage, new information that would allow things to be standardised. And um, you see, you know, that in itself also helps kind of modernise um, areas of li our lives that had been just the same since the 40s, you know. Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's my, my final duty is to thank you for your careful attention and contribution, to thank especially our hosts and curators from the Royal Academy. Um, it's wonderful that they're laying on these very high-level debates. But most of all, as chair, it's my great pleasure and privilege to thank our wonderful panel, John Grindrod, Ben Highmore, Penny Spar. Ladies and gentlemen, please show your appreciation. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.